1: Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation.
2: Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, our conversation, where wild meets music, is in the context of the film we'll be discussing today How I Became an Elephant. This is not as simple as one would think at first glance. I'm asking my listeners today to keep in mind the difficult subject matter you've ever seen or had to, or been exposed to in regard to animal welfare and wildlife conflicts and to take into consideration how the musical score and soundtrack, not just the narrative story being told, but the music that underlies just about all visuals we see today, from blue-chip natural history films to action adventure. The underlying score creates an emotional bridge to the viewer, bringing home on multi-levels some of the hardest things we've ever had to be exposed to on the road toward making a difference for our non-human fellow earthlings. Music is the voice of the soul and the harmonic of our planet. It underlies every living thing which vibrates in tune to everything else around it. So, Today, I would like to get started by introducing our guests, Tim Gorski, the uh, producer and director of the film, How I Became an Elephant, and Cody Westheimer and Julia Newman, the composers for The Score. Welcome. Thanks so much. (laughs) So let's hear Tim. Good morning.
3: Good morning.
2: So Tim is going... I'm doing good. It's a cold, uh, finally sunny sun morning here in Colorado, but I hear you're standing in a rainstorm in Pennsylvania.
3: Yeah, we're getting a big storm rolling in right now, and we've been, I've been camping with a friend of mine all weekend, so we're getting dumped on at the moment.
2: Well, good for you. From the Jackson Hole <laughs> Festival to um, an outdoor camping experience, that's got to be great. And yeah. Where are you guys, Cody and Julia? We're in sunny Los Angeles. <laughs> All right. So It was
4: about 80 yesterday. <laughs>
2: oh, you lucky dogs. Well, we've had snow. So um, uh, let's, let's start by um, – I'm going to just give what, a little background about the film so our listeners have an idea of what we're talking about. The question the film, How I Became an Elephant, ultimately asks people is – How far would you go to save a species? How I Became an Elephant is one girl's journey to inspire a movement following this wide-eyed 14-year-old from suburban California on her quest that takes her halfway across the globe and face-to-face with the gentle giants she aims to save and the horrific conditions they live under. So it is a bit of a difficult segue from the in-your-face content of the film to the -the behind-the-scenes composing of the music. So let's start with some background about how you all came to be working together and on this particular film. Who'd like to
3: start? Um, Well, I think Cody should probably start with that story because he (laughs) found me uh, a few years back. Cody, you want to tell
4: her? (laughs) <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a bizarre uh, story. Uh, so I, when I was much younger, um, I was a big, um, orca activist, um, trying to get the, the orcas out of captivity in SeaWorld and such. Um, and so when I heard about Tim's film, this is probably, I don't know, eight, seven, eight years ago, Tim would know the timeline better. Um, I found out about his, uh, his film called, uh, Lolita. A Slave to Entertainment, which is about an orca in Florida, I believe. And I was kind of dying to see this movie, um, and I could not find it anywhere. And uh, a quick Google search actually <laughs> ended up having me download it illegally, uh, which I can't believe I'm admitting on air. Uh, and so I watched his first film. Uh, and it took, it took years for me to admit to Tim that I watched it from an illegal download site as well. Um, but, and then I, then I ended up just contacting him kind of on the whim, just saying congrats on a great film, great job, yada, yada, yada. And um, that's kind of where our friendship began, and um, we ended up meeting up in LA at some point, um, probably five or six years ago, and talked that you know thought that maybe we would work together at some point, and of course we did.
2: So, Julia, you have. Quite a different background. You're also a composer. And, um, I think you and Cody are an item. And, um, you've, you've done a lot of network. I see in your bio that you've worked on some, uh, network TV, the hit show, uh, Fox show Bones. So did Cody just drag you along into this or is this something that you jumped into both feet first? Um, In terms of the elephants
5: or or composing?
2: Uh, uh, Well, both. Let's start with composing and then how that jumped you into the elephant, how I became an elephant.
5: Um, Well, um, to clarify, Cody and I didn't work on how I became an elephant together, but what we we do collaborate on is music for the Sheldrick um, Orphanage um, in Africa. And um, that all started when... um, Cody and I visited Africa a couple years ago, and we both knew somewhat of the poaching that was going on, but we had no idea the scale of the poaching that was going on. And when we visited the baby elephants there and were so enamored with them, we also couldn't help but wonder what brought them there. And we were deeply saddened to hear about the horrific stories of these babies witnessing their entire families being butchered in front of them and left to die out in the wild. And um, this amazing woman, Dame Daphne Sheldrick, who was actually knighted by the Queen of England for her efforts in saving the elephants, she has spent her entire life saving Um, elephants of all different ages and also all animals that are in need and she would bring them to her nursery and nurse them back to health and then reintegrate them into the wild and what makes her unique from all other um, animal savers is that she developed a milk formula, um, the only one in the world that had developed a milk formula that baby elephants can actually survive on outside of their mother and that that it took her 20 years to figure out the formula and um, she has lost many elephants along the way with trial and error but finally figured it out and she has um, she's actually been um, named she was honored as a doctor she's like an honorary doctor from this formula that she developed and it's proved successful um, in many of the elephants that she's saved. She's saved hundreds by now. She saved and-
2: um, so far, she was uh, honored with the lifetime. Legacy Achievement Award at Jackson Hole, so we yeah. all got an opportunity to meet her. Actually, Wild Ice has found a, Wild Ice has worked and funded several of the projects for those orphans um, in the the northern release area up in Nathumba. How wonderful! So um, we have that in common. She is a fabulous woman, incredible woman. She has uh, 173 elephants have orphans have gone through the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, and 130 have gone back into the wild. And as Dame Daphne says, every elephant is worth saving, even if it's not going to have a long life, the life it has should be of quality. So that brings us right to you, Tim. I'd say that's a perfect segue into... uh, being Wild Eyes Foundation and working in Africa and elephant conservation for close to 20 years, one uh, area I am not familiar with, which you're going to enlighten us today, is uh, the, the conflict and the conditions that captive elephants in Asia are facing. We're not talking about the ivory crisis here right now, but I do have a couple of questions about that. Um, we're talking about the captive conditions, and that's what how I became an elephant is all about about. So, Tim, I'd say, why don't you take the floor here and uh, give us a little bit about why, h- how this captur- captured your attention and um, some of the background. This is a, a project that's been close to your heart for quite some time.
3: Uh, yes, this is true. I actually, uh, I met uh, Lech Chilert, who is uh, she's known as the Elephant Lady of Thailand. I met this woman uh, back in, I think it was 2005, directly after the uh, Asian tsunami that hit the coast of Thailand. And I, I met her, and she introduced me to her small project at the time. She had rescued, I think, five elephants and had a very small property up in northern Thailand. And she introduced me to the problems that these elephants were facing when it comes to uh, captivity, and she took me to the border of Burma to show me where they were actually capturing the elephants and smuggling them illegally into Th- into Thailand, and then drafting phony papers, uh, basically like a car registration, because an elephant's a mode of transportation in Thailand, you have to register it like a car. So, they would draft up the sheriff, and Kanchinabari would draft up these phony papers, and then mm. basically, turn that elephant into a, a captive bred elephant in Thailand, which it obviously was not. So, I had come to learn that probably 75 to 80 percent of the working elephants in Asia, especially in Thailand, were actually born in Burma or, or Myanmar and smuggled across the border illegally. And the story really intrigued me a lot. And of course, uh, this woman, Lek. Who I just I found fascinating and, and fabulous, took me on quite a few adventures across many mountains, into many small villages and jungles to villi- visit the hill tribes and the villagers that were capturing the elephants, and and she was actually trying to, you know, reach out to these people and and reeducate them and change their hearts and minds, and I just thought she was an incredible woman, so I promised her. You know, I, I had to go back to Florida to teach You know, a week later, but I had promised her I would come back one day and make a film with her, and uh, it did. It happened. About three years later, I went back and started filming more with her, and then I met uh, Juliet West, who is a fabulous young elephant activist in Los Angeles who was actually planning to go to Thailand to also uh, visit and get uh, a better grasp and understanding on the, the treatment of the elephants in captivity. Now, these these elephants are captured and brought into Thailand and force-trained at a very young age mm. for performance. At, it's either for the circus industry or the trekking industry or both. Um, basically, the more tricks your elephant can do, the more valuable uh, he or she is. And they usually prefer young females. They're easier to train, and um, they're a little bit less unruly when they get older. So you'll find that probably 90% of the elephants working in the captivity industry in Thailand are for uh, are females working in entertainment. A lot of the males end up in northern Burma uh, in the logging industry because the male Asian elephant typically has large tusks like the African elephants. So They'll use them in northern Burma. They can use them in the logging industry because they're very strong and they can move around the logs uh, quite easily. And then when they're finished or when, they, when they've died, then they can harvest the ivory from there.
2: That, br- that brings – you've covered a whole lot of territory right there So um, and makes it sound like it was a rather simple project to do this. But once you watch the film – And you can see a trailer for the film by uh, going to YouTube and type in how I became an elephant and it gives you a brief bit of the trailer. Um, it is a full-length feature film. It won Best Children's Film at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival, but it is highly, highly educational. Here in the West, we don't quite understand the crisis that Tim is talking about of the captive Asian elephant and the horrors they are subjected to. It is not an easy film to watch, so um, I watched it yesterday uh a couple of times to prepare for this interview, and um, I guess my first question is is what has been the response by youth to this to this film um, because it 's not an easy film to watch I mean it, parental discretion ratings all that thing it's re- it's real it 's a critical film to watch, but what has been some of the response from youth and with juliet she 's fourteen years old and um, her activism towards this film
3: well the I mean, that's our target audience, Juliet's age. We were going after 14 to 18-year-old kids, and we reached them. I mean, they're really, really taking to this film in a big way. And I I wasn't surprised, because Juliet is just, she's fabulous, and she's great on film. She's a great activist, and uh, she's very motivated, and... We've shown it in quite a few film festivals around the world, to specifically to middle middle school age kids, uh, even in Bangkok, in Missoula, Montana, and I just did one in uh, in Korea, in South Korea, and the kids really get it; they get it, and they love the film. There's parts of the film that are very hard to watch, but it is very inspirational too, and these kids walk away inspired by Juliet, and I've gotten quite a few emails and and actually was invited back to Bangkok to come see the school projects that the kids in Bangkok are doing to help uh, stop the uh, elephant tourism trade in Bangkok and and other areas of Thailand and since our movie came out in Bangkok they actually banned elephant street begging in the streets of Bangkok and Chiang Mai so and our film is obviously making a difference with people in that part of the world too which was very important to me
2: which is this that's incredible, and um as tim said it uh it is a good message i uh, genuine, uh, genuinely urge everyone our listeners to at least see the trailer and I believe Tim that it will be made available online through chapter versions through youtube The, the film is set up in such a way to be able to be easily downloaded and um, I guess what well, we're heading into a break here shortly, so what i 'd like to just say is that um, the elephant in the, uh, excuse me, not the elephant in the room, that's my film Um, How I Became an Elephant it really highlights the underbelly of the issue in Asia and um, it's great to hear that the film has been shown in Asia and that the the positive response is happening but my question you said um, it has led in Bangkok to the banning of street elephants so that brings up a question in mind that we're going to address after we come back from the break that if, um, and it's brought up in the film, about the economic need for the poverty-stricken people and why they take these elephants on. So if uh, this tourism industry, let's say, gets banned and has the the will of the, the politicians and policy behind it, what will happen to the elephants if they're not being of benefit to the average everyday person which is a a parallel question in Africa. What happens when they cannot economically benefit from the elephants that are on their land? So on that note, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. (music)
1: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G
6: All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, book 18. Rachel Carson, in the sea around us, said,
0: All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end.
1: Listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to Wild Eyes at Wild That's W I L D I Z E at W I L D I Z E dot org. Now, back to our Wild World.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with Tim Gorski, Cody Westheimer, and Julia Newman, and we're uh, the theme of our show today is the film that uh, these three fabulous young people worked on uh, called "How I Became an Elephant." So, right uh, before the break, we were talking about um, how these elephants are used, and we, uh, Tim, you sort of glossed over. A lot of that in your explanation about this film. And without giving it away, I'd like to get a little deeper in to how these elephants are used um, because this is Asia not Africa. Most people are very familiar with the conflict issues facing elephants in Africa but this is a different issue um, where elephants are tied and deeply embedded uh, to the culture in a very different way. They are workhorses so to speak. So your film focuses on a lot of this. Let's talk about the tourist aspect because the question I asked before and you had mentioned that it's been the logging aspect has been banned in Bangkok of using elephants. So let's talk about the tourist aspect, because you do highlight that in the film.
3: Okay. Uh, It's actually the street begging that was banned in in Bangkok and in Chiang Mai. And that is uh, basically what they've done in the past is uh, a mahout or elephant keeper will bring... They, they typically live under a highway or a bridge and, and they congregate in mass numbers. They're kind of like gypsies. And they will... At nighttime, they'll bring their elephants to downtown Bangkok to the tourist areas and walk around and sell sugarcane to tourists. And the tourists buy the sugarcane. They feed the elephants and they get a photo op. And this has been going on for... for God, I don't even know how long. For many decades... And, and part of it is because the Thais do have a very strong connection with the elephants. And there's actually a good, luck, uh, uh, a good luck ritual that you'll see Thais, when they see an elephant, they will actually walk underneath the elephant three times for good luck. And in the cities, they would pay to do this. So, but these are people that had no idea what goes on you know, behind the scenes, how that elephant got place, you place know, in time and its life, that he or she is now working in the streets in Bangkok. And typically it's because they're captured, they're smuggled illegally, they're broken of their natural instincts and very, very barbarically broken, and then they go through an excruciating training process for years until they're capable of being brought out into public, uh, usually around four or five years old. Uh, And Once they get a little bit older, the novelty kind of wears off, Um, they don't really responds well to the traffic and the noise of the cities, as you can imagine. So that's when, at that point in their life, they maybe moved into a circus or into uh, a trekking camp. And a trekking camp is something quite unique to Thailand. They are springing up in other parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, Unfortunately, Laos and Cambodia and other countries are following Thailand's model, which is kind of sad. But there are approximately 300 elephant trekking camps in Thailand, all throughout Thailand. And each trekking camp has many, as I'd say, between 10 to 80 elephants, depending on the size of the camp. These elephants are typically owned by two or three uh, very important individuals, uh, politicians, or even mafia. And um, they, they they are rented out to the Mahouts, who will take them to the trekking camps, and they're hired as kind of contractors in these trekking camps to take tourists on, on rides through the jungle. Now, the tourists don't know any better. They don't know how the elephants got there. And to me, I, I find it quite fascinating that, you know, anybody would go to a place like Thailand and consider putting themselves and their children on the back of a giant prehistoric-looking animal and have no idea what that animal's disposition might be, where that animal came from. Um, many of them are extremely psychologically damaged. They've been traumatized from from the get go. I mean, they've been and they've been moved from one checking camp to another, from one circus camp to another. Uh, they switch handlers and owners constantly. Some of these elephants have actually killed their mahouts and their owners, and even tourists. Um, in the course of the time it took us to make that film, four tourists were trampled to death in Thailand by these elephants, working elephants, but they never publicized that. You'll never see that in the news, or, or you may, but it'll be a very small story. Uh, the Thai government will try and keep it very quiet
2: it's similar so, to what um, happens in Africa when a tourist or poaching or, uh, it, it, the cover-ups are astounding. And yeah. what I find is that we allow this blanket, we being the West or the tourist, mm-hmm. who says, oh, I'll go ride an elephant, won't that be fun? Our right. concept these days of what is entertainment. And uh, to go in and see, and obviously uh, Damaged, depressed animal. I mean, if anybody knows anything about animal behavior and your companion pet, your new puppy, you can read their face. And I was surprised that Juliet rode the elephant in the film. Um, Mm -hmm. I I can see why for the experience, but at the same time, um, it did surprise me that she, uh, she went ahead and did that. So the part that I'd really like our listeners to understand is all this sounds fine on the surface. But what the film is highlighting is really the ugly, ugly, horrific underbelly of the process from when these baby elephants are captured and poached uh, live and tr- uh, translocated illegally uh, for this purpose. It's horrific. Um, we've all heard about the bullhooks. Um, Here in the West, we talk about uh, getting rid of circuses and getting elephants out of captivity in zoos. And here is this glorious animal that everyone knows about, the African elephant, but what this film is highlighting is the plight of the Asian elephant. They're not being poached. They're not necessarily dying in the same horrific ways, but they are dying nonetheless. So um, tell us a little bit about all right, this is going to lead into the hard part. Let's talk about The Crush, and um, from which is – I'm going to let Tim talk about that. And then watching it is ex- incredibly difficult. And my question for Cody and Julia after this explanation is – and Tim – is how you decided to work the soundtrack for that, for that scene.
3: Okay. So tell us about The Crush. Um, okay, and and just to make a note that elephants are poached in Thailand. Um, it's not to the extent that they are in uh, Africa, but uh, just last year, five elephants were poached in uh, in a park, a national park in Thailand, and they discovered that it was actually park rangers that had poached these elephants for their ivory. So um, it does happen, but okay, it's, not, thank you. it's not as big a problem, right? Now, the, the crush box is, is pretty much the first step. And it's, it's basically, if anybody knows anything about breaking a horse, uh, it's very similar to breaking a wild horse, um, even slightly more brutal, I think. Much and, more brutal. Yeah, the, the, the basics, how it works is in Burma... It's not illegal to, to capture elephants, okay? It's perfectly legal. They've got about 5,000 wild elephants and about 5,000 working elephants in Burma. Most of the working elephants work in the logging industry. Um, in Thailand, the big demand is for the performing elephants. So, Thai, Thais, I, I acted actually as a broker in uh, on the border of Burma and Thailand, and I was out shopping for young female elephants that were recently captured and have gone through what they call the training crush. And the training crush, or the Pajan, as they know, know it as in uh, Southeast Asia, the training crush is a, it's a box. It's basically a crate about the size of the baby, the, the one-year-old. Um, they separate the baby from the mother, and they put the baby into... This is a wild baby, mind you. They separate from a wild mother, and they'll put the baby in the crush, and seal, seal him or her inside, strap the animal down, uh, all, all limbs will be strapped down and tied off, and then they will repeatedly poke and prod and beat the animal into submission for typically up to a week, maybe longer, until the animal is completely broken of all her wild instincts and, um, and just, just broken down psychologically and mentally. Once they feel they can release the baby from the crush, and the baby is is fearing the man, and that's that's basically what has to happen. The baby has to fear the humans. Once the baby fears the humans enough, and the mother is long gone, um, the idea is that the baby has forgotten the mother at this point, and now the humans can take control of of her life. Does that answer your question?
2: <laughs> yes, it does. Um, I mean, listeners, you have to watch the film to understand on the deeper level of what we're talking about here. Otherwise, you know, perhaps this conversation may not be making a lot of sense. I mean, it's no, it's making a lot of sense. We're highlighting uh, another plight elephants are facing, but you really need to watch this film. Um, So you need to understand, our listeners need to understand, uh, that the spirit of this baby elephant is completely broken, and uh, the woman, Lek, that uh, the film and is focusing on, her elephant sanctuary, and uh, Juliet West, who goes through experiencing what these baby elephants are going through, not necessarily physically, but certainly emotionally, and that it is about power and control. And uh, there was a point where Lek says something in the film that, uh, and this brings in, poverty and poverty alleviation, that the people, the mahouts, who are buying and trading these elephants have nothing else. They don't love elephants, they don't want elephants, but they don't have another choice to bring in uh, economic sustainability to feed their families. So they're using elephants to do so. And in doing so, I guess I have a question. If Elephants are revered and worshipped in Thailand. Buddhism, um, good luck, uh, all the paintings and this kind of thing. How does the mentality reconcile with this abuse?
3: Hmm. That is the million dollar question. I still, you know, I've been living in Asia for almost eight years and I still have not managed to figure that out I would tell you this. Most of the population in Southeast Asia are just clueless. They have no idea. When they see the elephants on the treks or when they see them in the circus, they see what they believe is a happy elephant, you know, painting portraits or carrying tourists on their back. They don't see the the crush that happens behind the scenes, you know, in the small villages way, way off on the border. Now, that's the general population. How, How the people raising the elephants... Uh, reconcile that, all I can say is they've been doing it for 4,000 years so it's really ingrained in their culture even though they may have some sort of uh, some sort of twisted respect and love for the elephants, at the same time they don't feel guilty about what they're doing they, they took me out to to witness the, uh, the captures and the crush and the logging industry and everything else in Burma and they were quite proud of it and there's no laws against it so,
2: so sorry, I have a question, is there a lot of child abuse over there?
3: Um, that is a good question. I didn't, you know, I had, didn't spend a lot of time working in child abuse. I think there probably is.
2: I, I, uh, I ask because, um, it's difficult to not notice screaming and suffering and pain. Right. I don't care what species we're talking about. And, um, there's some really poignant scenes in your film, one where a young child, I think probably between the ages of eight and twelve. Is holding um, a very damaged young elephant, and forcing her to perform for the camera, and she's got a, a very damaged leg. And you zoom in on this young man, uh, child, holding the bull hook, where his t where above that his t-shirt says love. Right. So, um, in your work, did you ever? Um, I mean the, the name of your company rattle the cage production says a lot about how you operate. I like <laughs> that um that you're not that you are a bit of an activist and that um you are trying to highlight this. So during um during this filming did you ever ask anybody and uh what they thought about how elephants feel
3: or is that oh, simply yeah.
2: and what was their answer?
3: It it depends. I mean, I've got a lot of mixed answers and, you know, I spent a lot of time in the small villages where, you know, there are some villages where I I genuinely believe they do love their elephants. And I did meet uh, mahouts or, you know, elephant handlers who had grown up with elephants. And in fact, I actually went, I walked 270 kilometers with a 47 year old mahout who had a 47 year old elephant. They had spent their entire lives together they grew up together. They, they went from circus to circus to trekking camp uh, and spent their entire lives working together. And he decided it was time to rescue his elephant, whose name was Poochie. And we walked Poochie 270 miles to go meet back with Poochie's original family where they were captured and reunited this whole family. Now, this is kind of a unique scenario nowadays. This was a... a, a if you can imagine growing up with a dog, Uh, and at the same age, these two are the same age. They were like brothers. I could see the way they were interacting that this elephant and this man had a very good relationship, even though they were, you know, working themselves, both of them to death in Thailand. And finally, this fellow said, it's time to retire myself and my elephant and go back to my family and let my elephant live in the jungle. (laughs) So, it's,
2: it, we're we're going to be heading into a break here, so okay. I just, I just want to not lose the point that we were coming to and Cody and Julia, the crush. Um, mm. It's very difficult, and um, there were choices made here where I'm sure that baby elephant and the voices of the people was chaotic and the sounds coming from that elephant. But what I noticed in the film, and you had to make a choice of whether to use the real sound or how to make the soundtrack so cody and julia i can only imagine how many times you had to watch this film and uh... we're gonna head into a break right Well, we've got two minutes so um... how did you come to how did you how did you come to the score for that scene
4: that, th- that scene in particular will go down probably um, <laughs> if you ask me at the end of my career what was one of the more difficult scenes to ever work on, um, I'm sure that would be at the top of the list. Um, there are times uh, that I will actually have to turn off video because I just can't take it anymore, and this was certainly one of those moments. I, I, I watched it a number of times to get a feel for it. Um, and then just, you know, I took notes and had markers in my timeline so I could just basically turn off video and, and work on the music. And, of course, those images were still stuck in my brain. I just wasn't physically seeing them on the screen at, at that point. And it, it was an incredibly difficult scene to work on for, for me. Um, but the, the end goal for me in, in scoring it was to be able to kind of capture, I mean, chaos is a good word, but also, you know, the rage that the the mahouts are inflicting on this poor you know, baby, as well as the rage that this poor baby is going through, and it just kind of builds to this kind of, you know, crescendo. Yeah, exactly. And I I think I mean Tim actually gave me a, a very long leash on that particular scene, and when I pitched it to him, I was a little nervous because it was a little unconventional. Um, the the approach we took, and um, but I think in the end, especially in the context of the rest of the film, it really provides just this. You know sense of hopelessness that this poor baby is feeling that it's just getting this you know all the pent up frustration and energy from the mahouts are, you know I'd say I' say you accomplished I mean, it
2: so having watched the film for the first time, um even though they've it's been available I mean we were all at the the festival um I don't know how many of us actually got to see all the incredible films, so I spent yesterday cat sitting and watching this film and the music that you put to this, Cody, is is astounding, and it is astonishing. Um, we're going to just take a short break, and then I want to come back to you, Cody, uh, with a little bit more about the scoring of this film. So sure. we'll be right back.
6: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media.
6: Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at one 866 472 That's one 472 5788 If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
2: Welcome back. We're with Tim Gorski, Cody Westheimer, and Julia Newman uh, discussing the film How I Became an Elephant, which is an excellent, eye-opening film, highly emotional. It does end well, everyone. I don't want to give it away. Um, And we have been talking about some of the deplorable conditions that the film exposes, but I don't want to scare you away from watching this film. It is an important film. It's not like watching elephants being killed or the slaughter or a culling or anything la- like that. It is highly sensitively done. It is for children so you adults out there can watch it and guide your um, children in into seeing it. So we were talking about with Cody and uh, Julia the composers and uh, the sensitivity that was required in scoring this film and uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, why you decided on, a, it's a bit more of a western style of a music score and uh, is this because it's geared to engage the western audience or is western music that accepted in Asia Um, give us a little clue about where you were coming from in that
4: Uh, yeah so I mean I think um, the goal at least was to kind of uh, have the two cultures meet a bit and so I I think while we we scored it in much more of a you know I I hate to use the word typical um, but um, we did kind of score it in um, some of that, you know, kind of normal documentary style, um, I did try to integrate a, a, lot, a variety of Asian instruments whenever given the opportunity. So um, when she, when Juliet first lands in Thailand, for example, there are a lot of kind of uh, what you would associate with, you know, bells and and different um, kind of regional Taiwanese, uh, sorry, th- not Taiwanese, uh, Thailand instruments, um, and so forth. So there, there are splashes of that along the way um whereas when you're experiencing juliet's kind of journey especially towards the end of the film it does take on much more of the the kind of um you know western tone for, if you will so um there's there's no that i didn't really there was no like line in the sand drawn from where we were going to have uh you know traditional western versus eastern instruments it was more just whatever was working in each situation we would kind of gravitate towards if that makes sense
2: it makes perfect sense because in the end you did a fabulous job. Okay. Um, really. Uh, during our break, Julia, you brought up uh, a really important issue that um, I wanted to get to, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, but before we go there, so don't let me forget, it's about social networking and um, what we see on YouTube that makes us think that all is well. But Tim also said he had a comment because I referred to Juliet uh, taking the elephant ride. So Tim, you had something to say about that.
3: Oh, oh yeah, I just wanted to make it known because I, uh, a few people have expressed their almost, almost disgust with Juliet. Are In you a, there? Elephant trek. If you know, she's supposed to be protecting the elephants and helping you know shut down this this elephant trekking industry. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Yes. Are can you, you not hear there? Me? Yes. Oh, you can. Okay. So, oh, yeah, I wanted to address that because uh, there are a few people have stressed they're almost disgust with Juliet taking that elephant trek um, because this is the industry she's trying to protect the elephants from. But, you know, I actually forced Juliet to take that elephant trek. She did it against her own will. And there were a number of reasons. But the most important reasons were, number one, Juliet coming from the West uh, I didn't feel she had the credibility to actually speak out about elephant trekking because she only had third you know, person information. She did not have firsthand information. So I that was one reason I expressed to her that I really thought she should take an elephant trek. And then the second reason was we needed the footage. There was no way we could get the footage of what happens during an elephant trek unless Somebody went on an elephant trek, and since this was Juliet's film and her adventure and her campaign, I felt like she needed to do it. She needed to show the world what an elephant trek is like, and now she can speak with much more authority when she goes back to the West to talk about these elephant treks in Asia.
2: And I absolutely agree with you. Is hars it? as it is, and being a conservationist, there are those times we do have to do the dirty work in order to fully understand uh, the emotional impact that it has on us and the emotional impact it has on our non-human neighbor earthlings. Um, so, uh, Cody and Julia, did you also visit Thailand to get a first-hand experience of what you were composing music for? I know you went to Africa and had a great experience with the Sheldick Trust, but this is... The other polar extreme.
5: No, we have not had the opportunity to visit Thailand yet, but um, it would be interesting to see that firsthand with everything that we know now.
4: And I would love to visit uh, the Elephant Nature Park. Is that Nature Park? I think that's what it's called. Uh, Lex. Yes. Lex Operation.
2: Yes, yes, and I believe I provided the links to that on our host page. The links Excellent. to um, the YouTube film, Cody's Cody Westheimer's uh, page, and Tim Gorsey's page are all available on the guest bio sheets on our host page, and they'll also be available on our website at www.wildeyes.org and um, our listeners are free to join in the discussion groups and give us their comments. So, um, I'd like to go back to a comment that Julia made uh, during the break, Uh, the social networking of the happy elephants, like the story of the elephant who saved the young girl in the tsunami. Tim was there just after that tsunami, covering it, and um, there's one going around that shows a happy baby elephant swimming in the ocean. Julia?
5: Yes. Well, several of my friends, now that I've become quite the elephant lover and activist myself... People send me, you know, different photos and videos all the time on my Facebook. And one that was the most popular was of this baby Asian elephant swimming in the ocean. And yes, from the looks of it, he sure looks like a happy little guy. He almost even looks like he's smiling and he's playing in the ocean and rolling around. And um, but then as I started to think about it, well, where is the mother in this? Why is it all by itself? And this doesn't seem like quite the natural um, setting for an elephant. And then I looked into it more and I learned that um, they're taken from their mothers and they're put on the beach to entertain tourists. And I believe that the the people that have captured these babies are collecting money um, for people to to watch this elephant playing in the water. And and I, I also found out that the salt water is also quite really not very good for it either. Um, But Tim, you may know way more about this than I do, but that's what I found out so far. So I I just was trying to Mm -hmm. discourage people from sending this to me over and over again and trying to understand the realities behind this smiling elephant in quotes. Well, we all have
3: an... I'm sorry, go ahead Tim. No, I was just going to say this is uh, probably partially a byproduct of the the elephant street begging being banned in Bangkok and Chiang Mai. And which goes back to a question that, that Ellie had was, um, you know, where do the elephants go once, once something is outlawed, um, where do they go? They don't just disappear back into the jungle. Uh, I imagine many of the elephants from Bangkok and from Chiang Mai ended up down in, in Pattaya, uh, and down in some of these beach areas in Kalyak, or I'm sorry, Calyak. um, and doing exactly this, rolling around in the beach for probably for money. The Mahoots are probably collecting money from the tourists for photo ops and things like that. So it's unfortunate that a lot of the business is just kind of moving around and adapting. I mean, these are people that make their living off of elephants, whether they like it or not. Some of them do enjoy it. I think most of them were kind of thrown into this industry. You know, they were, they were probably 16- or 17-year-old boy when their father gave them an elephant because his father gave him an elephant because his father before him gave him an elephant. And now you've got a 15-year-old kid in a village who is in, now charged with, with raising this elephant and how to do it, um, and a lot of times that means show business. So it's in no way a perfect scenario them banning or outlawing street begging in Bangkok um, because it's now probably migrating down to the beaches or even across the borders into uh, Cambodia.
2: So this brings me to a question. We have four minutes left, and like I said, this hour goes really, really fast. I have so much more I want to ask you, and I'm sure our listeners are dying to, to, learn, to learn more. But um, on the subject you were just talking about. If let's say the government and public will of Thailand did step in, and let's say education happened to help the Thais understand that all is not so right about what these elephants are being made to suffer, and let's say the tourists no longer supported such treatment, or in essence, um, you know, your film and Juliet's West, West's message became a dream come true that all this stopped. Would the loss of tourist income perhaps force Thailand to change its methods and use the elephants for black market illegal ivory?
3: Uh, that's a good question. Asian elephants don't have nearly as much ivory as the African elephants, and they don't have the elephant—they don't have the surplus uh, in Asia. They're, they only have about 3,000 working elephants in Thailand and about 250 to 500 left in the wild so and the captive breeding programs do not work so well. Uh, the gestation period for a baby elephant is two years and a lot of times the mother will kill the baby when it's born because the mother doesn't want the baby to grow up in a life of captivity Really so really yeah I mean exactly yeah. So wow. this, is a, uh, this is a problem in Thailand. This is why they keep bringing them in from Burma, because Burma still has a wild population. So, um, and I do see the hearts and minds changing of the people in Thailand. It's not necessarily the hearts and minds. It's, it's like you said, them being educated. The first thing we have to get them past is the denial stage. Um, if I show people video of, of the breaking of an elephant or how they're treated in these trekking camps, typically in Thailand, they'll say, Oh, that's not Thailand. We don't do that to our elephants in Thailand. We don't believe that that's, that's another country. So they're really living in denial because they, they do have a special place in their hearts for elephants. So we need to get them past that denial phase and accept that it is happening in their country. And then at that point, People in Thailand do start talking. they do start acting out. In fact, we have an, a whole new animal activist Alliance group in Bangkok that formed after the last flood. Oh and, and going back to your comment about uh, elephants uh, rescuing people in floods and tsunamis, mm-hmm. that happens. I, I've seen it happen. I mean these are, these are elephants that still they do care about life and they do care about people and they are used as you know heavy machinery. So you will see it. I did see it in the floods in Bangkok, and I was there during the tsunami in in uh, in Koh Phi Phi. Um You will see elephants rescuing people from underneath cars and underneath buildings, and you know they're not necessarily doing it on their will, but um, but they are used for good Samaritan causes as well. So there are quite a few gray areas. So this goes there, back you know? to this goes
2: back to several questions that I've posed. Previously on Our Wild World and all discussions that I have when we abuse um, our non-human neighbors and especially elephants, uh, as Daphne Sheldrick says, they are just like us. In fact, they're better than us. Mm-hmm. And I go further to say it's amazing that they can begin to forgive us for all that we have done to them. So we've only got about a minute. So I, I want to just wrap up and say um, thank you for this uh enlivening and, and informative discussion and um that uh I wa- people should know that uh the the elephant sanctuary this the story does have a positive End. And I've got 30 seconds left, so I've got to wrap up. If uh, our listeners want to learn more, they can check out Cody Westheimer at CodyWestheimer.com/wildphp and Tim Gorski. Look up how I became an elephant, and um, I would hope we could have a further conversation on this because the whole part that's left is what now. So on that note, um, I guess we're going to have to say goodbye and hopefully you'll come back and we can discuss further what's going on since the release of How I Became an Elephant. And I urge our audience to watch this film. It is beautiful. The score is stunning. Uh, The message is critically important and congratulations, Tim and Cody, on winning Best Children's Film at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival. So that's it for today and we'll See you next week.
3: Thank you and congratulations to you on winning short, best shorts.
2: Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Well, we're all working this together from different sides and different perspectives. It's all important. So I, I forward- would like
4: to uh,
3: uh sorry, I would like to have another conversation maybe on another show where we could talk more about the African and Chinese connection and what what you're doing with your short film and what i want to do with more production over there maybe we can have a whole nother discussion
2: do you want to do that next monday oh yeah. ooh, wow <laughs> okay <laughs> well,
5: whenever you guys are available but yeah and cody and i have more to say on that as well
2: okay Good. well it looks I like want, we have um, to hang on one second we have to wrap up now and Cody and uh, Tim to stay on the line for a minute because we're going to talk about bringing them back. So, thank you everybody for tuning in to our wild world.